Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, during this new episode of Founder Series, we sat down with Paolo Pifaretti, co-founder and CEO at CarbonX. CarbonX is a fintech climate startup that de-risks and facilitates the procurement of permanent carbon removal credit for companies aiming to reach net zero carbon. Paolo is originally Swiss and unlike all his peers at the Swiss Business School, he went into entrepreneurship and founded two companies before ultimately ending up as head of Net Zero at Algolia. Yet Paolo returned after this experience to his passion for entrepreneurship upon realizing the amount of risk involved in removing residual emissions and decided to found Carbonix to help those large companies. In this episode, Paolo explores the voluntary carbon market and why it is fraught with risk. In doing so, he takes us deeper into the sector. During the show, we will cover with him the following questions. Are voluntary carbon markets fair? Who are the main buyers? What does the regulatory landscape look like today? And maybe in the future, what solution has CarbonX created to address the challenges of this market? And how does it work? In the second part of the discussion, Paolo talks about how to take a FOMO as a founder and what content you should consume to counter that. Paolo, welcome to the show. Hi, Paolo. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about your exciting adventure, helping companies to turn their climate commitments into permanent carbon removal with CarbonX. So very excited about that. Welcome to the show. Hi, Guillaume. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, the, the format of the show, uh, we like to start with a 30 second introduction uh, about the guest company. So if you could uh, give us that, that would be fantastic. Absolutely. So CarbonX is a fintech climate company and we de-risk and facilitate the procurement of permanent carbon removal credits for companies aiming to reach net zero carbon. And so what That's we tough. do is that we make sure that yeah, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I, I thought you are you are done with uh, with the the thirty single intro. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. Even in ten seconds, he's able to do it. But please uh, give us a little bit more. Details no, 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 no. That that is it. That is it. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> okay, I didn't want it to uh, get your grasp, but we're gonna have time uh, later on during the episode to uh, to dive into uh, into the company and understand the, the ins and outs. So let's start from the top. You know, that's really something that uh, we like to do here is really put. Uh, the human back at the center of the uh, interview. Uh, you are successful founders, but uh, 
would love to know a little bit more about uh, you uh, as a person, you know, your story, your background. I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides building CarbonX? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, like, who is Paolo? <laughs> it's a great question. And to be honest, I think what I'm truly passionate about is, is history and, and geopolitics and it's somewhat, of course, influenced the reason why I decided to kickstart this initiative. But with so much going on around the world, I think it's very important to understand what is at play, what are the dynamics happening, why do we see uh, certain tensions rise, why is it important to tackle climate change, and what it implies for the different countries. This is a, a topic that uh, is often intertwined with history, as I mentioned, and, and geopolitics. And, and, and today, this is definitely what I'm the most passionate about. Any uh, other passion uh, besides, uh, you know, history and politics? Uh, do you like uh, it's, um, are you, uh, are you from the country? It's a fun thing. City? No, it's a fun thing to say. I actually used to joke about I had a friend back at my old job uh, um, at a tech company called Algolia, and he used to ask me this question. So what are you passionate about? And I would say entrepreneurship, not knowing what to say else. And truth be told, it's just that I love this. There's nothing more exciting than to be around people that are creating, you know, companies that are innovating. Um, you know, being part of that that environment is something that is is, is exciting. I I don't see else anything else more exciting for me than, than that. So being surrounded and you know bathing myself within this environment. Of course, I do love sports. I do love to hear music, like most people do. But what really gets me excited is, is entrepreneurship and also understanding, as I referred before, you know, the history of, 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 of countries um, and, and, yeah, what, what makes them tick. So tell us a bit more about your uh, you know, previous work and, and life experience before the, the launch of, of Carbon X, I mean, what, what did you learn along the, the way uh, that, in a way, you would not have if you had a, a different journey? I mean, what do you believe gave you maybe this one or two uh, you know, pieces of, uh, of experience uh, that yeah. give you an edge to start, the, to start the firm? No, no, absolutely. I think, so I had a bit of an atypical journey where I, I finished my studies um, in, in Switzerland. So I'm Swiss originally. I studied in... Um, St. Gallen, which is a business school and where most of my colleagues went for, um, you know, consultancies or finance institutions, I actually co-founded two companies, um, so two startups. Um, and so, and, and, you know, from there, I kind of had a lot of uh, hard learned lessons. You know, the very first company I, I started, actually, I ended up um, being sued by the Federation of Driving Teachers because I was trying to make the driving license affordable in Switzerland. And, and I ended up having to fight them off and we went up to the highest instance. So that's the federal court in Switzerland where we won, you know, the lawsuit. But very early on in my journey, I saw that, you know, the, the business environment is much more challenging than what you read in books. And so I think that that was super helpful. And then um, there I, I also joined a, a this tech company I referred to, uh, This was also a very inspiring journey. This was a, a company that was in hyper growth. It is today the world's second biggest search engine. And there I moved from a commercial role into the, um, the head of net zero initiatives. I had net zero there. And, um, and if I were to say what allowed me to kind of kickstart this, uh, kickstart CarbonX and, 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 and yeah, be where we are is, is mostly because of two things, which are persistence. A lot of what I've done or managed to achieve is thanks to persistence. And of course, the other one is um, stark or brutal realism. I'm a very pragmatic person. I have, I'm always very much aware of what I have, what is to play, um, what is lacking. And I think it's the combination of the two that allowed me to persist and first of all, create a job you know, at Algoia. So there was no head of net zero carbon position there. I created it and same was for, for CarbonX. So one question that we uh, always uh, ask uh, in the show as well is like f for the speaker in itself, we'd love to understand a little bit more like, you know, if you had any like aha moments or some, you know, experience that you would define as such 
that in a way gave you the, 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 this drive and this fire to really jump into the, the climate tech industry. I mean, you mentioned your role at uh, Algolia as a, you know, in creating exactly. that role uh, in the, the net zero, but do you have any, any other like experience that really like felt for you? Okay. This is really where I want to put, uh, you know, and commit fully my time, uh, right now. It's a very good question. And to be honest, it, it came from my experience. So going through the motions with Algolia that I realized there was a need for a player to secure and de-risk permanent carbon removals for companies. And maybe to give a bit of context, when a company aims to reach net zero carbon, it needs to, one, measure its carbon footprint, so scope out its emission. This is already a very complex task in itself. Then it needs to set up ambitious reduction targets and, and for that, um, you needed a lot of internal company alignment. And yet again, it is a very, it's a daunting, a daunting task, a very challenging one. And then finally, once you've managed to set, you know, reduction, reduction objectives, the goal is to then remove your residual emissions. And what I saw is that even though the first two tasks were quite complex, there were enough, if you will, players that would accompany us in our journey and help us do it diligently. But when it came to removing our residual emissions, that's where I saw that there were a lot of issues and mainly risks. And if I were to you know, boil down to what the two main risks were, the very first one was an integrity risk, meaning that the carbon removal credits we would purchase would expose us to greenwashing allegations, which in Europe used to be um, reputational risk, they are no longer that. They are actually a legal risk. You can actually be sued financially for that should you um, have or make fraudulent claims about your carbon neutrality. And so seeing that um, I needed to then focus on higher quality solutions, I went on and looked at uh, permanent solutions, solutions that would remove carbon um, permanently. And there what I saw was that all of these different technologies, these projects were in the becoming. It's a new industry. And tied to that was then the risk of non-delivery, which is a bit of a technicality. But what we mean by that is that since all of these projects are in the becoming, in order to finance themselves, they will sell their future emissions of carbon credits in order to obtain financing and grow their operations. So in layman terms, what it means is you as a company might end up signing a five to 10 year long contract with a company that has less than a year of existence and having to deploy funds ahead. So before receiving the credits. So from my company standpoint, that meant deploying capital at risk, which given the current economic conjuncture was a no-go. So the idea was how do I align my company's interest and, you know, finance these projects in order to reach net zero carbon. So before we, we, we start going into detail about, uh, you know, Carbon X, uh, as I mentioned prior to, uh, to the interview, I'd like to, to zoom out and kind of understand the, the overall context here. Um, you know, let's try to get your overview on the, the, the so-called uh, voluntary carbon market today. And maybe to, to put things back into perspective, uh, to refresh our audience, uh, if you could give us like to start like a your definition on uh, how it differs uh, to the mandatory uh, carbon market. Exactly. No, it's a, it's a very good question. And so the context is today, since the Kyoto Protocol, so that's 1997, there is a compliance market, uh, a compliance carbon market, where um, basically countries that have signed the Kyoto Pro Protocols have um, received carbon allocation that they redistribute within their industries. And today, the compliance market, the compliance market represents 98% of all carbon markets, if you will. And what we're seeing and what we're focusing on is the voluntary carbon market, as you're referring to, and what the voluntary carbon market is composed of, uh, composed of mostly is on one hand, credits that are issued following avoided emissions, and I will explain in a second what avoidant emissions are and credit issued uh, following the removal of carbon from the atmosphere. So the active removal. And if you will, within this voluntary carbon market, avoidance offsets are still the majority of it. So 80% of the, 
of the voluntary carbon market to this day are traditional avoidance offsets. And now what offsets are, um, they are issues or, or credits that were issued to finance, for instance, renewable initiatives. And so it was a way to allow renewable technologies to ramp up, reach the economies of scale in order to compete with more, with more traditional energy supplies. And so this made a lot of sense back in 1997 when we needed to, of course, heavily finance these renewable energy that we're now seeing pop up everywhere and avoidance offsets are a fruit of that. But the issue is that in, with regards to the Earth's perspective, one ton of avoidance, avoided emission represents nothing in the sense that um, if we were to, as a company, emit a ton of CO2 and try to mitigate it with one avoidance offset, in terms of net emissions, there's still one emission more in the atmosphere. And that is why today there's a lot of issues around the credibility of these offsets. And so in relation to that, what we saw now is the rise in carbon removal credits, which represent 20% of the voluntary carbon market to this day. And removal credits, within removal credits, you will find two main categories, temporary carbon removal credits, so where the removal is done on a temporary basis that is mostly done through um, you know, reforestation, afforestation initiatives, and then permanent removal credits that are issued through the permanent removal um, of carbon. And here, permanence is measured over multiple centuries, if not thousands of years. And so that is, in a nutshell, what the carbon market is. I thank you for this uh, complete, uh, you know, overview. Uh, I, I like to, um, you know, in this context, like double click a little bit on the, you know, who are the, the, the main, uh, you know, buyers on the, this uh, voluntary uh, carbon market? I mean, if you could tell us maybe a bit more about like their profile and, and what are their, their motivations and, 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 and maybe if you have some data points regarding like the, the quantity of carbon credit uh, that are currently, uh, you know, into this uh, marketplace. Uh, what, what type of amount are we talking about in terms of dollar, but also in, in terms of uh, quantity of, uh, of carbon credit? Uh, is it like, are we calculating that in terms of uh, GSG uh, avoidance or offset? Uh, it sounds that there is like a, a little bit of like gray area there. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, if you can tell us a bit more about like, you know, if there's any like projection uh, that you see uh, in, the, in the future. It's a, it's a very relevant question. And I think this is one that a lot of people are trying to answer. Today, the voluntary carbon market is still a nascent market, especially if we look at permanent removal. So very hard to get, uh, you know, numbers and updates on to, as to how big the market is. But in, there, is, there was recently a, a report shared by BCG. Um, and if you will, today, the voluntary carbon market represents approximately $2 billion um, versus the $850 billion that the compliance market is. And that gives you a bit of an idea of how big the compliant market is as well. Um, but within, of course, these this um, voluntary carbon market, uh, a big majority, of course, are um, these traditional offsets and nature-based removal credits. So it's still a very unclear as to really how many permanent removal credits there are available. This is something that we're heavily focusing on on our end with CarbonX, so providing more market data um, to provide more visibility as to what is available. I think this is what is needed in order to foster broader market adoption. But to give you a bit of an idea, when it comes to actual buyers today, there are no specific um, buyer profiles, if you will. It is true that, is, that there is a strong interest from heavy emitting industries, especially for the more traditional types of offsets, because these are the ones that fall under scrutiny and that are in need of you know, capital. And so are in order to decrease, decrease their you know, cost of capital, will invest in some kind of ESG initiatives, which most, most of the time translate into traditional offsets. 
And maybe here I introduced a bit of a technicality, but with, you know, the growing climate change, there is a growing demand from investors for, for companies to invest in their ESG impact. And so for companies that are slacking, that are doing nothing, of course, the cost of capital uh, increases because it goes against what investors are expecting most of the time. Um, and so that that is in terms of perspective. So here I shared with you the numbers, so $2 billion um, for the voluntary carbon market. I think what is important to understand is that this is meant to drastically grow. Um, and a conservative estimation is uh, by a factor of five. So normally by the end of this decade, the voluntary carbon market will represent approximately 20, uh, sorry, $10 billion. Um, and it, but it also ranges, there are estimations that uh, think it will account for $40 billion. But what we know for sure is that, um, and here maybe we're getting into also more projections about what the future holds for us. Um, and I'm, I'm going to give you a hot tip. Um, we're in discussion with the European Commission and the purpose or the goal of the European Commission is to actually integrate the high quality permanent carbon removal credits within the compliance market. And so what we know is that, um, and they plan on doing it post 2030. And so what we know is that should the carbon removal credits integrate the compliance market, we would of course see an explosion in value within this market. So definitely looking more at $40 billion um, as a conservative estimate. And you mentioned that a little bit, but like, what? Uh, love to get your insight a little bit on the, like maybe those you know challenges and, and opportunities that you you see uh, that in a way could uh, accelerate this voluntary carbon market uh, deployment, and maybe uh, following that, uh, do you see? And you you mentioned that with like the European Commission, for instance. But do you see a need for uh, maybe a, a merging uh, between the uh, compliance uh, market and the voluntary market, and uh, finding ourselves at the end of the day with uh, uh, just uh, one type of market that will aggregate uh, the panel of of solutions uh, available, but uh, on the other side, uh, uh, this large portfolio of increasing uh, companies uh, that are forced or that uh, will be enforced to uh, to offset to uh, permanently uh, sequester as well uh, their emission uh, in itself it's a it's a very fair question and i think here we need to understand the context and what the context is um back in 2016 i believe we signed the paris agreements um and the paris agreement is an accord amongst countries to uh, set in place different sustainability climatic actions to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And so based on the Paris agreements, um, in order to stay within the limits that we've set for ourselves, with the, which is a two degrees uh, increase to, versus you know, our pre-industrial trends, we need to heavily invest in carbon removal. Even if we manage to reduce by 80 to 90% our emissions. And so the context is, should we manage to remove or sorry, reduce our carbon emissions by 80% by the end of um, 2050, we should uh, remove at least 10 gigaton, that is 10 billion tons of CO2. And so today, what the European Commission is doing in so our other entities, agencies throughout the world, is to find a way to rationalize the financing and the scaling up of these industries to remove these 10 billion tons of CO2 per year. And so these are the dynamics today that we're seeing. So the reason why we're seeing carbon removal markets integrate the compliance or potentially integrate the compliance market is because the European Union or the European Commission wants to start financing these initiatives so that we may reach the scales needed to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Mm. This is the context. 
Do you see any uh, type of uh, regulation that uh, today, uh, in a way, is missing uh, to really accelerate uh, that uh, adoption of the of the market? If you had like uh, you know the opportunity to write uh, any regulation at the European level or maybe at, at the US level, which one do you think would be missing today to really like uh, accelerate that? Uh, and maybe in that context as well. Um, how do you see the difference between the U.S. market or North American market and the European uh, market uh, in itself? So it's it's a very inter interesting and the reason why I think I think what highlights truly that this is a nascent industry is because for the very first time we saw a suggestion of a new piece of legislature appear a few months ago. So that was end of 22 coming from the European Commission. And that piece of legislation of, or that proposal for legislation is called the CRCF, the Carbon Removal Certification Framework. And it is actually the desire to, from the European Commission to start a setting, if you will, a framework for these high quality carbon removal carbons to integrate the compliance market. So they need to set the basis so that they may start to certify projects and therefore start to certify carbon credits and then eventually integrate them within the compliance market. So that is from a legislative point of view. There is nowhere, nowhere else where um, we see um, any other country so far proposing anything at this stage or to this level. So Europe is very much leading the way when it comes to carbon removal and carbon markets. On the other hand, in the United States, what we saw is the IRA. Um, and what the IRA is, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, is basically a financial uh, package to boost the industries fighting climate change. And, in, and it's, it's approximately, and I might be wrong here, but I think it is 270 billion dedicated to these projects or industries fighting climate change. And if you will, part of that, of course, is going towards the carbon removal industry. And so on one hand, it's created a huge incentives for most carbon removal projects to relocate in the America in order to benefit from these investments. But the funny thing is that the people that are most likely to buy them first, or the companies that are most likely to buy them first are in Europe, given the upcoming regulations. Because here, of course, and I think this is something I haven't mentioned yet, um, but typically a traditional offset in the voluntary carbon market costs anything between uh, $2 to $10 approximately. When we look at permanent carbon removal credits, it ranges greatly from $200 a ton to even multiple thousands a ton, depending on how innovative the technology is. And so for a company to invest into these technologies, there needs to be a strong rationale. And so that's where, where regulations come into play. And so that's what I meant with, if you look at the dynamics, on one hand, you have the United States providing funding to scale the industry, to create incentives, to build these technologies in the United States. And on the other, you have the European Commission finding ways to rationalize the purchase of these much needed carbon removal credits. So I'd like to, uh, to, zoom out, uh, to zoom in a little bit more into this, uh, you know, carbon credit uh, providers uh, and the technology more on the, on the permanent, uh, you know, uh, sequest uh, carbon credit uh, uh, sequestration. I'd like to understand, according to you, because you have been digging into this, uh, this uh, interesting and exciting and promising world in itself, what are the... the top three most uh, exciting or effective solution uh, out there uh, in terms of uh, carbon uh, sequestration. Um, I mean, if you can give us like a overview of maybe like how do they uh, work? Uh, where can we uh, you know, find them today? Where uh, was the current state of, uh, of development? Um, and um, you know, if you have any, like, maybe a few data points regarding uh, uh, potential of capture uh, of greenhouse gas and, and storage for those uh, one, two or three. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be hard to keep it to three, but if you mind, I'll keep it to four. Um, and that is we're extremely excited about four main uh, carbon removal pathways. The very first one is the direct air capture. I think this is something that a lot of people have been hearing about. 
a lot thanks to this Swiss company called Climeworks operating out of Iceland, where you basically have huge machines sucking up the air, so fan-like machines sucking up the air. And, and within these machines, you will find chemical sorbents that will capture the molecules of CO2, liquefy, so carbon, sorry, liquefy them and send them 10,000 meters below the ground and effectively mineralize them. So turn this liquid carbon into um, rocks. So permanently removing CO2 over you know, multiple um, thousands of years. Um, so this, and, and this is of course, so one of the, I think most promising, most interesting removal pathways. It is not yet mature. Uh, it is in development um, where we're seeing most projects start delivering, you know, tons or credits is by 2024. Um, you know, we've covered approximately 21 of them. Um, and here, what is quite interesting is uh, these removal pathways need or require very little land use compared to other solutions. And once, you know, we fix the energy, um, you know, needed input problem, you know, we'll be very scalable. We'll be the ones most likely to deliver the much needed, you know, gigaton scale removal. Then another removal pathway that is of interest today and that is much more mature and that will be delivering, you know, high amounts of credits in the next few years, starting off this year, is what we call bio-based with long-term storage. And that is because, that is mainly methods using biomass and if you will, um, turning it into or concentrating this biomass into concentrated and stable carbon through different technologies, leveraging, uh, you know, pyrolysis, for instance, if we look at biochar or bio, or even, you know, kelp sinking. Yeah, and here I'm thinking about our difference from a running tide. Um, and so basically it's anything where the sequestration, the capture is done through photosynthesis and then turned into, um, you know, liquefied carbon, if you will, or there's, again, different metals methods uh, to then permanently store it. And here, when we look at bio-based solutions, um, the, the, the capture, the sequestration is done over multiple centuries and thousands of years. Now, what is very exciting about this place is, as I mentioned, they're already in a capacity to deliver a lot of tonnages. We're talking hundreds of thousands of tons in the next few years. And they also come at a very interesting pricing point. And so, um, and I think here we're getting closer to, um, you know, the $200 a ton pricing point, which still is $100 more than, you know, what is really needed, but definitely going towards the right direction. And here I hit it at a point that is very important that we have yet to mention. Um, there's been a lot of studies around what is the ideal price point for uh, for market-wide adoption of carbon permanent carbon removal, and that price point is $100, which is more or less aligned with today's EU emission trading system, which is the price for the compliance market. So now we've talked about two removal pathways. I'm going to go for two more. First, enhanced weathering. That is very interesting. So enhanced weathering is the use of minerals that naturally react with the carbon molecules um, and, you know, capture and mineralize with the, the carbon molecules and that occurs naturally. And there are now technologies that accelerate this natural process um, by a factor of a thousand. And so this is, again, one of the technologies we're very much excited about where we'll see a lot of tons being delivered in the next few years. And that already also provides us with very interesting price points of $200 a ton approximately. And finally, the last removal pathway we're very much excited about um, is ocean alkalinity. And ocean alkalinity is a technology that um, will um, alter the chemical composition of oceans for it to capture and sequester more carbon. And so this is also a very interesting technology. It is probably the less mature one as to it. There is a lot of work still to be done on the measurement, reporting and verification bit of this technology. And there are also some questions around the legality of it in the sense that can we alter the chemical composition of oceans? Uh, but nonetheless, these are very interesting, uh, you know, technologies like enhanced weathering, ocean alkalinity, you know, sequester carbon over thousands of years, which is very much what we need at this stage. So to, to close this uh, section before we uh, jump into uh, into CarbonX, you know, as everyone knows, uh, there's always like some controversy 
and some public opinion uh, backlash uh, between you know the tech or engineered uh, solution versus like the nature-based solution. Uh, what's your intake there? I mean, are they able to coexist and really makes, uh, make sense together? I mean, what is missing uh, according to you to increase maybe a uh, collaboration uh, in terms of like uh, those, uh, those kind of like two uh, big pathways today? I think nature-based offsets and technology-based ones or technology-based removals um, they definitely go in hand in hand. Um, today, we'll probably see a big part of the credits being delivered by nature-based removals. The only issue I would say that are tied to them is that for most nature-based removal projects, it is very hard to um, define, to verify the claims of each credit issued. It is very hard to prove, very hard to prove the additionality of each project. Um, and since we're um, dealing with nature, um, there's a very high chance of reversal. So what I mean by that is when you buy credits coming from a forest and that forest goes into flames, today there aren't really proper mechanisms set in place to compensate you for these credits that should have gone into, you know, that should have also vanished with the flames. Um, and so that's what I meant by, you know, there's a lot of risks that are tied to these nature-based offsets. Um, and that is because in nature, these ones are uh, temporary solutions. And so most public companies will look at the co-benefits and we'll talk about co-benefits when talking about nature-based solutions. And I think it's very relevant. I think nature-based solutions are not necessarily great mechanisms when it comes to removing carbon because the removal should be done over thousands of years. Um, but they're great for biodiversity, empowering you know, local communities and so when a company is asked about its broader ESG impact, I think these nature-based solutions are a great solution for that. But they're not the main, you know, if they're not, I would say, the most appropriate mechanism when it comes to removing your carbon footprint. I used to have this conversation with this person based out of the European Commission, and that person's opinion was, let's think about the main benefits first before talking about co-benefits. And so here, when we talk about Carbon credits, the main benefits should be about removing carbon. And that is why we need verifiable additional net negative um, with no re-emission risks solutions. And that is why we're doubling down as CarbonX on these specific removal pathways. So let's go deeper into, uh, into CarbonX now. I mean, and you already revealed that a little bit, uh, you know, at the beginning of the, the interview, but what is the, the, the story behind it? I mean, who is it for and which gap did you initially identify uh, that led you, you to the, the current version of, uh, of Carbon X? I mean, why did Carbon X have to exist in a way if you can like just, you know, reframe uh, all of that prior uh, going into the how does it work uh, and the user experience in itself and in a way your secret source? Absolutely. So. Again, what is CarbonX? CarbonX is an intermediary. We secure carbon removal credits for companies and permanent carbon removal credits for companies aiming to reach net zero carbon. And what we do is that we take care of the overall process and it can be a quite demanding process from sourcing projects. And as you can see, since there are no clear registries or marketplaces, there's a big work to be done in identifying all of the different projects within the removal uh, you know, pathways, understanding you know, what are the delivery dates, the available tonnages, and prices. And so a big part of what we do you know, work ahead is getting all of this updated information available. And then a second bit is, of course, securing the contracts. And where most companies today would have to secure individually, you know, contracts with each of these projects, what we allow companies to do is to say, sign a single contract with us while we secure you know, projects for them. And we will take on the risks of actually getting into contracts with all of these different projects. And why are we able to do this? And, it's, and this is where our secret sauce comes in. It's because first we work with third parties to vet the integrity of each project. And here we talk about the technological integrity of each project. So we make sure that each of the projects we work with are integral and cannot expose us to greenwashing allegations. They do remove carbon permanently. And then we evaluate 
each of those projects capacity to deliver the credits um, over time. And that continuous evaluation is done internally. We've developed our own risk assessment framework that allows us to assess the risk of non-delivery and uh, potentially mitigate it. Should we, for instance, identify that a project is in a capacity or is at high risk of non-delivery by adding you know, new projects to our own portfolio? Um, so, because, yeah, sorry. No, no, go ahead. But uh, I think we'll, we'll double click a little bit on the exactly. on the, the certification and like how do you ensure the, the risk of uh, delivery a little bit uh, later. I like to just, you know, step back and, you know, imagine I'm uh, working for uh, a large European corporation um, on the net zero department, or maybe I'm, I'm the head of. Yes. Uh, I like to, uh, you know, find ways to uh, uh, offset or not offset, but really like remove uh, the emission that, uh, that we're working hard on that. So if you can tell us, like, when I get in touch with you guys, like uh, how uh, the process works, if you could walk us through the, through the, through the process, uh, what are the, the type of, you know, credit uh, that you, you can offer me uh, to purchase? Like, how do you collect them? And you mentioned that you, you already do the, do the contract, but if you can go a little bit more into, uh, into detail for, for me as a buyer to understand, uh, to understand that. Uh, how do you price them uh, as well? Uh, and how do you ensure this, uh, you know, level of, of certainty that you, they will be able to, to provide uh, all of that? So, you know, help us to visualize a bit like the, the process uh, in a very uh, simple manner using uh, maybe an example of uh, one of your uh, customers without naming it, but uh, just to really mm -hmm. like uh, make it visuals for uh, all the audience here. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. There's two main ways to go about it. Um, either they come to us and they ask us to, to kind of run an RFP for them. So a request for proposal. So basically <clears throat> here we will align on what are the removal pathways they want to focus on and set the specific requirements. It can be based on geographies. It can be based on delivery dates or price points and then run this RFP with all of the different projects we work with. And here we will then take care of the overall uh, process, as I mentioned, from securing the process, uh, the projects to actually, um, you know, delivering the, the credits um, and making sure they're included within the registries, etc. Another approach that we have is for companies, and this is typically for companies that are working on a tighter uh, time schedule, if you will, is they come directly to us with a specific amount of tonnages in mind, and they then ask us to, uh, according to you know the first conversations we have, to rapidly provide them with a portfolio of projects. And so this is what we will do. We will then align on what the specific, again, are. So what are the delivery dates? What are the amounts of tonnages needed? Are there, there a specific, a specific needs in terms of removal pathways? Um, and then once we have that all in place, we will then assign a singular contract with that entity and we will take care of the rest with the other projects. And the great thing is that we're in a capacity to do this or have a turnaround that, that is very short turnaround from first conversation to end, you know, to end of or signature of the project, we're looking at it less than a month which is very hard to do given the fact that it's a very uh, dispersed industry. Mm -hmm. So how long did it take uh, your guys and, and, and your team to put together this uh, first uh, you know, prototype? And if you can maybe share with the, the audience what were the initial challenges uh, that, you, that you faced, how did you overcome them? And uh, maybe today, what keeps you uh, up at night? Yeah, it's a very much market-based approach. It came from the need I had with Algolia, where we definitely needed, you know, sometimes just to remove our residual emissions. And there I saw that, of course, there were no solutions that would, you know, mitigate the two risks I mentioned. So this integrity risk and this non-delivery risk. Um, and so it is coming from that that I decided to then, you know, start this initiative and therefore, you know, vet for each of the projects and guarantee the integrity of each of the projects we work with. And then through our active monitoring of each of the projects, you know, guarantee the delivery um, of the credits. And so that's the approach we took. Um, and today, I think what is, what is very hard or what is quite challenging is um, there's a growing trend. There's more and more companies wanting to remove their carbon footprints. Um, and their expectation is that 
this is a spot market, meaning that the credits are widely available, which is not the case. This is an industry in the becoming. So for the, for the most part, these carbon removal projects will sell your, their future emissions of carbon credits. And so aligning interests between companies and the reality of the market is a challenge, and it has to, a lot to do with education. Um, and today, this is what we spend most of our time on. And so when people ask me, what am I doing? I always say, I try to rationalize the procurement of these solutions. Um, because of course, what will happen is company will come to you and they'll say, okay, we're just about to issue our sustainability report. Uh, we need this amount of tonnages to remove our residual emissions and reach you know, this milestone we've set for ourselves. Um, where can I find these credits? And we need them now. And that is very hard <laughs> because most of the supply is already locked up, if you will, to a certain degree. And so it's, what we do is then is a heavy work of contacting, you know, and that's why we have this continuous communication with all of these projects is then rapidly identifying the project we know are in a capacity to deliver those tonnages and deliver them as soon as we can to the, these buyers. So out of the 20, you mentioned like 21 um, credit removal uh, suppliers or that uh, where you're buying to the, those options for the for That the is future. for one removal pathways. We've, we've covered more than 60. So today we retain more than 60 projects. We've vetted more than 100 of them. Um, yeah. So out of those, uh, then therefore like those, uh, those 60 uh, projects uh, that uh, you guys selected and, and, and vetted, um, I'd like to understand how long does it take uh, to vet them? Uh, how is the, the initial contact and relationship with those uh, uh, early stage uh, companies? Do you see one or two uh, companies that are already more mature? I mean, you mentioned uh, Climeworks, uh, but I was mm -hmm. hearing the other day that some capacities that is actually deployed today in Iceland is like the equivalent of like uh, 800 cars on the road for a year, uh, which is uh, still <laughs> way much. far from uh, what we uh, what we need and what probably uh, you're trying to uh, to expect in the future. So, uh, mm -hmm. do you see any like uh, of those um, companies already like a bit ahead uh, that comfort you and that allows you to uh, aggregate and package them uh, those credit for the for your your client and future client? Yes, and I'm sorry, this was a bit of a long question. What was the first bit of your question that I wanted to answer first? No worries. The, the initial was like, uh, how, how is this uh, you know, process work in terms of like vetting uh, you know, those early stage yes. companies? How was the Absolutely. initial uh, reaction? Uh, and then if you see out of those uh, companies that, uh, that you vetted and you mentioned 100 of them, 60 have been uh, uh, retained there. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see any like uh, advanced, uh, you know, technology? You mentioned at the beginning Absolutely. of the, the show, fork uh, type or path are very exciting right now. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. uh, some of them might be uh, in there. Absolutely, it's a very relevant question, and I think this is a great thing about permanent carbon removal projects is that, for the most bit, it's very easy to, or it's easier to verify each of those projects. Because when, for instance, if you take direct air capture, when you have actually this liquefied concentrated carbon, you can actually measure how much is being sent, you know, 10,000 meters below the ground. So a great thing about focusing on this side of the industry is verifiability is not so much of an issue. Um, and here, what we do is that we work with third parties that are not your traditional verificators. Um, and here, of course, I think, uh, there's a lot to be said about maybe, you know, last week's post about The Guardian where uh, one of the traditional verifiers kind of um, got a lot of limelight for some quote-unquote um, bogus projects, if I, if I can put it that way, or quote the, the, the article. And so what we do is that we work with these newer verificators uh, that are all science, you know, science-backed. Um, to make sure that the projects are integral. And then uh, 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 going back to your second part of the question, so how does the initial sourcing goes? I have to say, for the most part, it's a bit of a tedious process. Um, and that is because it's very hard to get a good glimpse as to what the reality of the land is. These are all up and coming companies and they will sell you what the, their vision is, 
without, and it's very hard to get to the actual truth. What is actually available at what pricing point? What justifies that pricing point? And this again comes from my own experience going through the motions with, you know, Algoia, where I was kind of vetting all of these projects and I saw that it was so hard, it was such an opaque process. I felt the need for a, you know, a stakeholder that would bring a bit more transparency to the overall procurement, um, you know, process. And so for, for like most, it was a very uh, lengthy, tedious process for us, but again, persistent pain. Uh, we kept on, on following up with all of the different projects. We, um, you know, started re building relationships with all of them. Um, and I think also through our own persistence, we showed, um, we showed that, we're, that we were a credible partner and that we really meant to scale this industry and that we were here to partner up with them. You know, on one hand, what we're trying to do for these suppliers is to guarantee the demand. We're trying to find ways to guarantee demand so that these projects can then, with this guaranteed demand, obtain you know, project financing, obtain debt you know, from banks, for instance, to scale their operations without having to dilute their capital. So, so, so that was, that's how we've been doing. So it was a very, you know, it, it, it took time, but it paid off. Um, and now we have a standardized approach. And I think um, as we're securing also these projects with clients and their voluminous projects, we're starting to come out as a very serious player in the industry. And did you, do you see, um, based of all of those projects that you guys vetted, uh, any like, um, I would say, type of technology or companies, uh, if you want to share any, any name there, that are like further ahead uh, in a way and that already are able to deliver uh, some of those carbon credits or will do it very soon? Uh, and in which quantity are we uh, speaking about here? No, no, absolutely. Um, I think it will be hard to share specific names because there's quite a few of them and it depends on, again on, on the specific requirements. However, what, what I can tell you is today where we see uh, the most mature technologies is in with or with bio-based you know, solutions with long-term storage. So biochar, bio oil, BEX, you know, solutions, um, and, and enhanced weathering, you know, as a removal pathway. So solutions that provide this or focus on this enhanced weathering technology. And here, what is very interesting about them is that we're already seeing quite a lot of tonnages available as of this year. At very interesting pricing points, we're talking $200 a ton, which is unheard of so far. Uh, given the fact that we're talking thousands of years of, se of sequestration. Um, and, and what is quite interesting is that these projects, they are happening all over the world. It's not focusing on a specific region. We see them in Europe, but also North America. And we're starting to see you know, some projects happen in Australia, um, North Africa, as well as Latin America. And so that's, that's quite, uh, um, quite interesting. So last question, going back on the other side of the, uh, the marketplace on the, on the, on the buyer side, um, can you tell us a bit more? I mean, like, uh, they are buying those options, uh, that you guys aggregate and put together, uh, with the, the suppliers on the other side. But when you mentioned they're buying, are they like currently paying, uh, carbon X to have access and access right on that. Absolutely. Uh, what's the percentage that they need to pay compared to the, the price of this, uh, this credit per se. And how do you price those credit? I mean, you mentioned like the, this price per ton around like 200, which is, uh, quite still high, but, uh, way lower than what we are used to, uh, to have right now. Um, so who decides of the price? Is it like you guys are making in a way, deal with uh, the carbon supplier, uh, the carbon credit supplier, or is it really like um, there's other instance like influencing on that uh, on that price? And so that's a very fair point. And I think here, this is where, again, we provide a lot of flexibility. You mentioned options, but we do not do only options. We do pre-purchase agreements. We do off-take agreements. The idea is to provide the companies with the contracts that are that they feel the most comfortable with. So here we work with the whole range of initiatives or solutions, if you will. Uh, but typically, what a company and this is where you know we we also de-risk procurement is that we require no upfront financing from the company. 
meaning that they only pay or deploy their funds upon receptions of the credits. And once these credits, credits sorry, match the predefined criteria. So this is a very, very flexible approach for companies to make them feel comfortable. So there's no deployment of capital at risk. And today, this is a bit how we distinguish ourselves from the other suppliers or if you will, resellers or yes, sellers. Um, and, um, and what we have is a fixed pretty. So we'll typically tell you this is the price per ton and we'll apply a fixed fee per ton. And this ranges, of course, on the scope of the projects, the length of the, uh, the, um, of the contract. And so I, to this day, I cannot share you a specific amount of what we share or what we apply, but uh, it is by far, and this we know from, from, uh, from the feedback we've gotten with buyers, much less than what we've seen so far in the market. And in terms of uh, ton, um, you know, price point, uh, can you tell us a bit more about the mechanism behind, like that define that price and Absolutely. that uh, you communicate through, through, your, it's through a... your client. So how does it work there? Who is like Absolutely. looking at it to make sure that, uh, you know, there's no like uh, <laughs> fake rebates price. In fact, uh, mm -hmm. it's uh, <laughs> a little bit more expensive. It's funny you mentioned this. Or cheaper. <laughs> Absolutely. And we have, we include that in contracts. Should there be any guarantees that there are no, you know, backhand uh, rebates? Um, we're very transparent about the way we operate. Um, and the great thing about how we work is from the get-go, so meaning from the very first conversation, we'll actually show you what the prices are, what their available tonnages are and delivery dates. It's everything I missed when I was doing it for myself. And that is because, you know, getting or reaching at zero is such a complex task. When you get to the very last step, you want it to be frictionless. And so that's what we're trying to provide. We want to make sure that from the moment you engage with us, it's a frictionless, it's a seamless experience. You will get directly what the pricing is per removal pathway. You will get, that, get directly, you know, the delivery dates and the tonnages. And then based on what you decide to focus on, um, you know, we'll, we'll select the projects and then we'll, we'll have the fixed pricing defined. But all of that is done in a very transparent manner, if you will. And a big part of what we do is also making sure we're cross-referencing, uh, you know, what the prices shared from these projects are. We want to make sure that, uh, you know, to some extent, they're based on actual costs and represent, of course, a factor of reimbursement. But we don't want to be overpaying for each credit. And so having us as a dedicated procurement team makes sure that you, you know, allows you to, to feel comfortable with the, you know, the prices you work with. Um, and again, it's by having kind of this diversity of projects we cover that we know where you know, dealing, for instance, with a supplier that has a very attractive price point. And that's what we provide. And out of curiosity, what's the range in terms of uh, price based on the different technology and pathways that you uh, that you described? You mentioned 200 is probably the, the bottom line. Uh, and Absolutely. How, how far does it go in terms of price? And do you guys have any barriers oh, yes. of time saying, okay, no, this is too expensive for anyway for like our, our buyers. So uh, guys come back later when you have a, a better price point uh, to propose. We, we never rule out any projects um, in the sense that we'll always list them and we'll, they'll tell us what their pricing is. And you know, a lot of our clients are also impact based, so they won't focus so much or won't have a ton for ton approach, meaning that, you know, they want to remove, you know, if, they want to finance one ton they can actually remove. Most of these companies, they want to maximize their impact. And so if it means buying a ton that is quite you know, expensive, but it helps this new technology scale and reach the economies of scale that will bring down the total cost, you know, we'll then include that in our portfolio. So I will be you know, quite open about this. Most of the time, it's not necessarily pricing-based. It's not a pricing conversation per se. It, it is an impact conversation. And here for, you know, there's for direct air capture, um, where we see the market average being is at approximately $900. Um, we are in contact with projects can do it for $450 a dollar for direct air capture. So that's very interesting and very promising. For bio-based with long-term storage, um, where we see the market be at $300 a ton, we're looking at 880, you know, 200. Um, for enhanced weathering, Market is at 450, we're at 200. And then finally for ocean alkalinity, 
um, it's a market at 450 and we're at 300. And here you said it, I'm, I'm being very open about this. Um, and I think it's very important for companies and buyers to know about this um, because a lot of them kind of have this idea that permanent carbon removal is out of reach, is you know upwards thousands when it isn't. Um, and so, and for most of the price points I've shared with you, these are for deliveries within this year or next. So if we look even further into the future, let's say 2025 or 2026, we're looking at much more competitive pricing. And I think that's what's very exciting about this space. Last question uh, on my side. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit more about like, the, the competition today, uh, maybe in the US or North America and, and, and Europe. Uh, I mean, why are you guys different or maybe better? Uh, you mentioned a bit like probably the, this pricing and flexibility approach. Uh, you mentioned that uh, at yes. the beginning. Um, tell us a bit more about this, uh, you know, landscape uh, that you're evolving there. You know, what differentiates us is, and to this day, we're probably the single player that took a purist approach in the sense that we solely focused on permanent carbon removal. And that is very important to us uh, because it's a question of integrity. And we want to make sure that the carbon credits we procure will stand the trial of time and will stay in compliance with future regulation. So that's extremely important for us. So again, here we took, you know, talking about brutal realism, we took a very pragmatic approach um, when it came to which project we would work with. Whereas if we look at where the market is or our competitors are, of course, they're where the bulk of the market is today. And here, you know, I, I refer that, you know, 80% um, of um, the VCM was traditional avoidance offsets. And, and, you know, within the 20%, I'd have to find the figures, but it's still a majority of, you know, if we look at the removals, a majority would be nature-based removals. Um, which we also don't do. We do not do temporary removals, which out of those 20% remaining percent is where the majority of our competitors are. Um, and so what differentiates ourselves is truly our purest approach and the fact that we've truly focused on the procurement side of things. A lot of our competitors focus on the technological, you know, integration bit. So making sure they can easily integrate with their, their own customers. Um, and also another thing we're seeing is um, focusing more on the carbon removal projects themselves. So helping them get verified and certified. So they're more catering to the needs of carbon removal projects, whereas we really focus on the buyer side. And to be honest, we do see a, a future where we'll end up actually working with these quote unquote competitors um, because there's always going to be a, a need for, you know, an entity that also guarantees the needs of, of you know the buyers versus the sellers um, and so it's just a, a normal thing the market is maturing and what we've seen work in the, the typical you know uh, commodity space or you know other other markets is going to be applied also in the carbon space the carbon markets so what's next for carbonx so a big thing of what we're doing today is we're you know securing these contracts for companies so making sure that uh, companies can reach net zero carbon or reach their interim goals um, and, and kind of uh, getting to the public. Today, we're still very niche. We're still very unknown. Um, but then the next step is as we secure, you know, the demand, the idea is also to pair that with project financing eventually. We want to be able to finance the projects we work with uh, in a non-dilutive manner to help them scale and, and reach, you know, the volumes needed to stay in line with the Paris agreements. We never lose sight of, you know, what the context is, what the whole goal is about. Um, and this is what we stand for. So what's your, uh, what's your personal opinion on the, on the climate crisis? It's a, a question that I ask uh, to each of, uh, of my guests. Uh, I mean, what would be your words uh, to, to people who are afraid or feeling demoralized uh, by all the, already visible consequences of, uh, of climate change. Uh, are we doomed? Uh, what would you tell them? Oh, it's a, it's a terrible question. And, and to be honest, it's, it's, a, it's a hard one because if we, if we look at, for instance, Pakistan last summer, I mean, it's pretty much doomed. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people died. Um, we see this happening more and more everywhere in the world. So to a certain extent, unfortunately, there is doom already happening. And I think we all need to be very much aware of that. 
Um, nonetheless, a lot is being done. By the end of next year, we'll see uh, the CSRD being be put in place. That's the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive being implemented at the European level. What this directive is about is kind of measuring um, or reporting on each of the companies operating in Europe, um, you know, broader ESG impact. And here we're finally having real factors where companies, you know, will have to switch from a narrative approach where they've been telling us stories about what they've been actually doing to towards you know, qualitative and quantitative data. So we'll start seeing the reality of what, you know, how companies operate. And since there is a growing pressure, we'll see a lot of these companies feeling, you know, the need or starting to execute them and setting up real ESG uh, initiatives in place. And so I am very much optimistic with regards to that. But again, I think we need to take into account that unfortunately it's already a dire time. Um, it doesn't mean we need to stop everything. This is why we're working hard towards scaling this industry towards um, making sure that permanent carbon removal becomes a reality because we need to remove this excess, excess carbon in the atmosphere to avoid the worst effects of climate change. But climate change is very much here. And so I think it would be a lack of respect towards all of those people that are suffering to undermine that to a certain degree. So how can uh, our community of uh, investors, founders, experts around the world listening to the show can uh, help you today? I think inviting, so if you listener have a say in your company's sustainability initiative or you know ESG team, ask them about what they're doing. What are they setting in motion? Are they measuring their carbon footprint? Are they setting you know, reduction objectives? Um, are they looking already at removing the residual emissions and holding them accountable for it? I think this is the best thing they can do. And then, of course, always have a science-backed approach. Today, we've been seeing a lot about, I, talk, I just talked about new narration. We've been feeding ourselves stories. Um, and, and today, we see these new technologies come into play, and I think it's important that we focus on them. And so true change will come uh, from, you know, science-backed initiatives. Any question that I did not ask you that I should have for this uh, first part of the interview? No, I think it's, it's a very interesting topic. I, I thank you for, for asking me. It's true that uh, we're seeing more and more of, of these, uh, uh, you know, talks happen. I think one last thing maybe I can share that you could have asked for is, uh, you know, where to look for information. And, and, he, and today there are some very interesting figures that are um, allowing this topic to become public. And here I'm going to mention my dear friend Robert Hoglund. So Robert is someone that writes a lot about permanent carbon uh, removal initiatives and projects that does a lot for the community. And so here I would definitely have a look at what this person is doing and writing. Um, I would also look at Carbon Gap. Carbon Gap is a, um, a think tech, an NGO that also is pushing a lot for regulations to happen. And I think true change does not come without regulation. And they also do or publish a lot of data around carbon removal projects, uh, carbon removal regulations. And I think um, you know, following them will give you a good idea of, of what's happening. Thank you so much, Paolo, for your time, uh, your incredible insight uh, in the industry. Uh, I'm super Thank excited you. again to see, uh, you know, brilliant people like you uh, putting so much time and effort to, uh, to build something uh, meaningful that can, uh, uh, you know, make uh, the world a better place. So uh, thank you so much for uh, joining thank us you. today. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech Footnote podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And see you next time.